Hello, I'm Jane Crowther, editor of Total Film, and welcome to Inside Total Film, the weekly podcast from the Smarter Movie magazine. And today I'm joined by our online editor, Jack Shepard. Hello. Hello. So this week, Jack, we're rating Avatar, The Way of Water, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, and Corsage. But before we get on to those, what else have you been watching this week? Well, I think like the rest of the world, I've been watching the Harry and Meghan Netflix documentary. Um, I'm only one episode in because that was all I could take for the minute, I think. I don't really know how I feel about it, apart from it's addictive watching, but also I dislike everything it stands for and what it is. And But that's kind of like the royal family. I can't help watching it and getting involved with the drama, even if morally... You know, I don't really believe that these people were chosen by God, but let's not get into that. It's it's interesting to tell you. Have you watched it, Jane? I have. I've watched two and a half episodes, and I think it's just fascinating viewing just from a sort of media perspective of the narrative that is being crafted and shown to us and, and trying to work out what the intent is of that and, you know, the sort of gossipy element of it. And just that this is, this is unprecedented that no... Royal has granted this much sort of casual access to their life so far. So it, it feels like something that I watch in a homework way rather than I'm watching it because I'm actually that interested in it. Um, but I don't know about you, Jack, but we are the media. We are part of the media. <laughs> and so there's a lot of like everyone in this keeps talking about how awful the media is as this sort of catch all and that this is the big bad. So I'm just interested in, as we go along, whether that will get more granular about what we're talking about. Um, because I do think that sort of when people throw away, throw around accusations like that, that the media is all bad and it puts all forms of media into one basket, that it's disregarding some really important sort of um, outlets that, you know, watch and uh question and measure and report and all of those sort of aspects of it and to sort of just massively say all media is bad feels a bit weird but then we're in that era anyway aren't we that media are we are we're all bad guys we are bad apparently i'm so entrenched in being part of the media um i find a lot of those claims quite laughable because it feels so painting everyone with one brush but also just a fundamental misunderstanding of how many of these publications work oh well, i used to work at the independent um, yes. which was a which was a newspaper and then went all online and we were in like the same building as the daily mail and the metro and you know you would get to know some of these people who were members of the media and and would write for publications that i i couldn't personally write for and disagree with but you know they they're very different and they're a lot of them are well intentioned people who perhaps editors or just someone at the top will change the words or do something there's so much granular you're right stuff there that needs exploring and that's why I find it quite funny in a way that you can be like oh my god all these people are just they're just evil but they're not they're they're people as well and there are some major issues with the media with the paparazzi especially jumping in front of people um from bushes and invading privacy but at the same time, I guess what I find interesting is how much in this documentary Harry and Meghan are putting out there themselves. And I guess that's the difference, isn't it? They're choosing to put this out there. We're choosing to put a photo of Bio media. In. Like, that's what I find odd is 
I mean, I guess away from the media chat, but just the idea of putting yourself out there to that degree. Here's a photo of my like husband when we first met and he's, you know, lying in bed looking at me nicely or whatever. And I'm like, I don't need to see this. This is very odd. Um, it's very exposing. Yeah, there's there's a lot of weird stuff going on here. A lot of talking points. I think it's you could do a whole podcast just talking about yes. that, and especially I mean, its and it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Yes. Uh, the whole aspect of it, and then obviously the media's response to it as well, and the various headlines it's generated. So it's it's really interesting, um, as interesting as any film, I would say. So. And it also feels it's that classic thing, isn't it? That you feel like you have to see it because everybody is talking about it. Listen, you're not going to like what I'm going to say next, Jane, but you said as good as any film, but the World Cup has been great. There's that been too. so good. Yeah. I feel like that's been taking up a lot of my time watching all the... Well, we're on semi-finals at the moment now that we're recording and there was a, there was a solid match yesterday with Argentina getting through. Oh, it's been... There's been so much good drama and the England game versus France full of twists and turns. That's probably been taking up more of my time. <laughs> yes, and, and is as dramatic as any uh, screenplay, I would suggest. Okay, so shall we move on then and talk about, you know, there's Actual a big film out. There's a big big film out. It's time to dive into this. Why do you come to us? I just want to keep my family safe. Treat them as our brothers and sisters. Teach them our ways. Keep up for us, boy. If you want to live here, you have to ride. Let's do it. Just breathe. Breathe. So this is Avatar, The Way of Water. Ah, Jack, for someone who has no concept of Avatar or what's gone on before, tell us a little bit about the James Cameron Avatar phenomenon. Well, over a decade ago, this little film called Avatar came out and it made a bit at the box office. I believe we're, we're, we're nearing the three billion mark after various re-releases and as such, uh, but that film took us to the world of Pandora, which was filled with these native blue people called the Navi. And in that film, we saw Jake Sully, who was a human, going into one of those creatures. Now, in this movie, Jake Sully is one of those creatures fully. He's no longer an avatar. There aren't really many avatars in this movie, so the name doesn't make as much sense as it used to. Um, but yes, we're back in the world of Pandora and Avatar The Way of Water. Uh, we're back with... Jake Sully and uh, Zoe Saldana's Natiri, one of the natives as well, they now have a family. They have two sons and a daughter and an adopted daughter who is somehow the well, the real daughter of the dead avatar belonging to Dr. Grace, who is played by Sigourney Weaver in the original. And here that daughter is also played by Sigourney Weaver. It's a bit odd. And they also have an adopted human son called Spider, who is left behind by the humans after they left Pandora in the original. That's a lot to take in. We'll breathe. That's like the first 30 seconds of the movie. 
And so. then what happens? <laughs> and then the plot starts and the humans are back on Pandora. Uh, they're looking for a new homeworld after ravaging Earth. Um, and now that they're back on Pandora, the natives, led by Jake still, uh, you know, are fighting back. Also, Stephen Lang's character, Colonel Quaritch, 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 yep. Quaritch, is, is here as well. He may have died in the last movie, but he, he's back and he's blue now because his memories are now in a Navi body. Um, and the humans who are led by a cameo role by Edie Falco, who is best known for The Sopranos, uh, they want to, to mine the world for its resource and basically take it over. And and again, that's probably the next 15 minutes after the first five minutes yeah. I just talked about. This is a long, long film. This is three with... hours and 11 minutes, right? Yes. And I would say there's a whole lot of plot very quickly in this movie, a lot of exposition. And then, you know, the, the movie's called The Way of Water. You're expecting to see some water. You get it and you get a lot of it, but only an hour into the film. And then it's and then it's vibes. Then we're we're just doing underwater vibes. We're just kind of hanging out with whales. We're having a little swim along. You know, the Sullies are all they go and meet the the Metcaina clan with one of them played by Kate Winslet. And yeah, they're, they're just swimming around. And these around are the water people. A... I mean, basically the, the, the Navi are the forest people and they and Jake Sully and family escaped in order to protect the forest people because the, the sky people, i.e. the humans, are coming for them. But they just take that fight to another tribe, which seems a little selfish, but they do. And off they go to the water people to learn the way of water. There's a lot going on, but at the same time, not very really much not at much all. Going. <laughs> oh, Come on then, Jack. A... Any good? I liked it. I really enjoyed being on this world again. I enjoyed being transported back to it. I enjoyed the underwater stuff. I thought the the vibes were were fun and cool. And I thought the last third, especially the action that was going down, was really great. Played like James Cameron, greatest hits. And, you know, we're not just talking aliens and the action stuff. We're talking Titanic as Titanic, well. Titanic, yeah. And Abyss. I mean, and Abyss. The, these huge references to all these films from, from his uh, filmography. I thought it was really, really stunning. It does take a long time to get there, though. And you also have this weird frame rate stuff going on that I found really distracting in places. So it's got a very high frame rate for the action and then other places, you know, it drops. Why Why didn't that work for you? I mean, for me, it was a bit weird because it felt like the whole thing felt like a video game, just watching a video game. We should also mention, obviously, this is in 3D. Did that work for you, that high frame rate? Uh, in places it did when it was just CGI characters, it really did. I thought it was really absorbing. It's playing at 48 uh, frames per second, so it looks silky smooth. And especially the underwater stuff, it looks incredible. I really was transported there. But then the moment any human character comes on screen. It's 24 frames. Got... We're down to 24. But it's it's not, though, because there, there are parts of it where kind of spider, this human character, would come on and it would feel like watching a video game, but then seeing some just a human come into it. And you would be like, what is going on? This is so, it looks really weird. Yeah. And so for people who, who don't really understand, I guess, what that, that means and the smoothness would look like, um, if you remember back when The Hobbit first came out, yeah. Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy, he did the same thing. But the whole movie was in this this. 48 frames per second thing and it made the sets i remember at the time thinking that you know the sets looked really so, suddenly really cheap 
they just looked really odd when they, when they weren't. This was a mega budget movie. And it's it's not the same here. The technology has obviously moved on and the CGI stuff really does look great. But the, again, the moment a fluid human comes on screen, you're so not used to it. Yeah. It just looks really weird. I mean, we saw it again with Gemini Man recently with Will Smith, which just looked really weird as well. And it and it's distracting, I I found. Because I, I would have been more into it, I think, if if I just watched it in normal, like a normal film. Yeah, I mean, the frame rate is non-negotiable. That his frame rate is in everything. You can watch this in 2D or in 3D. So if you find those glasses uncomfortable over three hours they're not going to get any more comfortable are they but i do think that you know the 3d is worth the experience i mean that's the thing for me i found this whole film would have been better as a theme park experience i'd have enjoyed this if i'd gone in and had an hour of this of like swimming underwater and experiencing it and had some water squirted at me and wind in my hair and it was an experiential thing but for me it felt like it was three hours of the same thing but when it worked as you say when we're sort of like vibing under the water and there's fish swimming past and jellyfish and floaty things and and there's music playing it's kind of nice isn't it it's like having had an edible I watched this on, speaking of the World Cup, it was during the England game that we won. I can't remember who we were playing because I didn't watch it because I was watching this instead. And the day after I was at waiting for a junket and one of the other journalists said to me, they were like, this would be an amazing film to be on Edibles watching yeah. super high. And it was like, yeah. We're totally, not condoning, we're totally not condoning drug use, but. No, I, no, no. I, but yeah, but... It, it felt trippy, right? It felt sort of like this other sort of worldly experience. And that's great. But narratively, let's talk about narrative here. This is very repetitive. It feels like the same narrative three times over, one for each hour, which is essentially Jake Sully saying to his kids, stay here, don't get into trouble. The kids don't, and he has to rescue them. Three times over in different scenarios. Which I was just like, can these kids just like, just listen to their dad for once? I mean, I understand that this is where it's taking it, but it just felt incredibly repetitive to me. Did you enjoy the arc for these characters? Uh, yes and no. I didn't mind the family re- dynamic and I saw it as more being repetitive with the original Avatar. Yeah. Because it follows a lot of the same story beats. We even get, you know, the the hair tangling with the tree that lets you see people from the past and you stuff get it that, in coral that, this time you get it underwater this time you get jake having to learn how to use a new animal with his hair tendrils again and see him training with that you see them adapting to a new surrounding it's just now it's the underwater people rather than in the forest which is which is fine but i i watched the original in preparation for this because i hadn't seen it for a decade yeah. Since, since cinemas and i i was really struck by how much of it is similar and how much i probably wouldn't recommend watching the first one if you're gonna go to the cinema to see this one just just let those memories be nice memories of seeing that wash film. over you literally yeah yeah exactly because i do think this is a huge cinema experience i i still think and would recommend going to see it especially if you did enjoy the first one, because it's kind of a repeat. But now rather than stepping into the forest world of Pandora and being like, whoa, we're stepping into the water world and being like, whoa. I do think the last third makes up for a lot of what comes beforehand. I really, really rated the action and thought it was James Cameron at some of his best work, some of his best action work. 
I mean, there's a lot of story threads in here that are going to pay off very obviously in a sequel as well. Yes, and it's left wide open for that. I mean, there is a a certain character that does something ridiculous that feels completely out of character purely to ensure that more narrative trauma will come that we can watch in another film. Yeah, I mean, I would say the, the character who definitely has so many seeds planted for their future story without revealing anything really about the character would be for for me it seemed like Sigourney Weaver's teenage character Kiri yeah this strangeness going on in the background with her but never really addressing it and just letting it happen I mean how convinced were you by Sigourney Weaver as a teenager not I mean her voice is so well known (laughs) we know it so well it just feels weird. Her sort of saying, hey, guys, you know, hey, stop that. And sort of, you know, that's Sigourney and you know her entire past of, you know, all of the films that she's done, you know, you know that it's her. So it didn't work for me. Whereas, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, I struggled to understand which one was Kate Winslet. This was another part of it for me. There's, I really kind of this one, I couldn't tell the Navi apart, really. And I didn't feel like they looked enough like the people who were playing them for me to really understand. So I was like, oh, was that, oh, is that Kate Winslet? And so it felt like very strange that she was in it. And also, let's talk about this, Jack. We, we talked about this in the office. All of the cast have talked about being in real water tanks, holding breath holds, learning to dive, and that Kate Winslet broke, you know, Tom Cruise's breath hold record with a seven minute dive. Why? Did you see evidence of why that informed this? Like how that helped this? This is all CGI. Like why does anyone have to be even wet? I mean, James Cameron has spoken about wanting to capture the real underwater feel of the Navi being underwater. So whether that's the the way the hair flows and things like that. And there are obviously many sequences underwater. But yes, agreed, they are all CGI. There are no human characters who really have to hold their breath. And even when the human characters do, it's more realistic because they're all wearing things on their faces to be able to do so. Um, The music, I don't understand it. You could argue it's just for the realness to be able to see how someone's hair flows. I mean, Cameron again has spoken about not wanting people to wear oxygen masks and things because you could see the air bubbles flowing up. So even the cameramen on these films had to hold their breath the entire time they were filming underwater in these tubs. It's quite a feat, but at the same time, you've covered it all up in CGI. So it makes it feel slightly redundant in a way, though I do feel that some of that authenticity comes through. I mean, speaking about some of the characters who you can't tell them apart, I mean, Kate Winslet's only in this for five minutes. Yeah, she's, re- she's hardly she in doesn't, it. She's hardly in it. She's She doesn't really make a huge impact. Zoe Saldana's Natiri, I felt, was highly underused. It feels like maybe we're setting up for a more female-focused motherly sequel, whereas this one focuses on fathers. And you can see the themes here as well between many of the characters, especially Jake Sully, obviously. I actually thought Sam Worthington was really great in this. I thought his performance came through the CGI and it was really impressive and we haven't seen him on screens well i guess clash of the titans Uh, let's not think about that this has been written about length how he was set up to be this mega movie star after avatar the highest grossing movie of all time and then didn't really do anything but back in this he's really good and really solid and some of the kids performances are really great too it's just a it's a really hard film i find to love and to be like 
this is really great because we, we we're talking a lot about negatives but i did have a really good time with this and in the cinema but it's really easy to pick up on small things whether it's sigourney weaver playing a teenager or the tails on the Ugh, i hate the tails <laughs> i find them horrible what there's so many bums in this ah uh, yeah the, um, blue bums everywhere there's a lot of blue in this film there's there are some really strange kind of cameos i mean jermaine clement from Flight the Concords is in this for five minutes again. There's just some really odd choices. And and I think it almost probably would have been better served if we didn't know that there was another one coming. Because with the knowledge that there are potentially four Avatar sequels, it feels like not only are we sprinkling in a lot of things, but we're we're holding stuff back, some of the exciting stuff back from because we know there's all these movies coming. Although I would say, you know, never bet against James Cameron. He no. obviously knows how to do sequels and he knows how to do franchises. So fingers crossed that three, that's definitely happening because it's already filmed. Start of four has already filmed two. Although the rest of four, which apparently would happen after a time jump and then five, they're not officially confirmed by Disney yet. And they have, it all depends on how this film does. So if you love Avatar, make sure you go see it. They need the box office numbers on that opening weekend, don't they? Because because Jim's poised. He's he's there ready to go based on those numbers. I saw somebody say on social that this was like a, a screensaver for three hours. And I have to say, that's kind of how it felt for me. It it just was stuff to look at whilst I shoved popcorn in my mouth. I didn't feel emotionally connected to any of it. And there was a weird lack of peril in this. The only things that really seemed to die were fish. And that actually was probably the most sort of uh, engaging part for me. This moment when the themes of sort of ecological um, themes came into play about what are we doing to our oceans and how are we treating uh, the fish and the animals and the creatures within them. And and that felt engaging. Then, of course, you've got the theme of, you know, colonialism, which is a very huge thing in this. What are we doing as a as a world, as a world in terms of other realms and and as you say mining other realms for our own good but also this idea of they've called it dances with wolves in space uh avatar mm. before this is essentially dances with wolves in the sea do you think that those were done well elegantly handled yeah i think they weren't overly heavy-handed some of it was pretty obvious the fact that humans are back on pandora because earth is completely broken and stuff it's you know there's tried and tested tropes i guess but i think it, i think it's effective and i think it's it's obviously a love of james cameron the ocean and conservatism everything like that and and he does it he does it well he knows what he's saying he knows the the right message to produce does spending 20 minutes hanging out swimming around with an outcast whale make for a great movie and narrative mm. Maybe not. I think you're right. I think the idea of it being a roller coaster ride and kind of just a a, a vibes time is probably the right way to look at it. But I'm not against that. <laughs> I'm not against that. So, but yes, the messaging is I thought done well. I think it's important for a big blockbuster to say something important that is necessary for the times. You know, when was the last time a big Avengers movie said something as important as this? I'm not really sure. But then Marvel movies are set out to do something different. And that's like purely entertain. And I'm sure James Cameron would argue that this isn't just entertainment. It's something more than that. Yeah. I don't know. What did you think, Jane? 
I didn't feel anything for it. I was like, ooh, look at the fishies. That was the whole point of it. I was like, look at the fishies. Uh, I kind of want to go diving. And um, when can I book a beach holiday? Those are my thoughts whilst watching it. I didn't feel emotionally engaged with it. It's tricky because I, I did feel, I felt more ties to them. Maybe maybe that was because I watched the the first one just recently. Maybe I'd go back on my former point and say, yeah. I actually do watch the first one. And then connect get... with them. Yeah, get connected to the Navi. But also, if ah. you have an aversion to people who say bruh and bro and cuz with every sentence, then this is going to rub you up the wrong way, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there were there were a few similarities with the Fast and Furious films throughout, I found. Especially the use of the word family. Family. Many, many, many times. Yeah. Ah, and some of the mindlessness of it. I don't know. But I love the Fast and Furious films. So You do. You, you, you love it. Absolutely love it. I mean, nobody drank a Corona underwater. So, you know, we're, we're not going that <laughs> far. But yeah, family. Well, apparently, apparently Vin Diesel's in the sequel, in exactly. one of the sequels. So we're really bringing it, bringing yeah. the fast. We're crossing the streams. So are we saying to people, go and see this? I mean, I think much as I disliked it generally, I still would recommend that people go and see it because everyone's going to want to have an opinion on it. It is an experience whether whether that's good or bad and you know it's cinema on its biggest most bombastic scale isn't it yeah definitely and also you know this is a sequel to the highest grossing movie of all time directed by james cameron that's come 13 years later i don't know there's there's not been a film as momentous as this since well i guess top gun maverick <laughs> you know it's on that changing the level ga- in terms of-, of changing the game you know scale and the amount that's going to be talked about it will be playing for weeks and weeks and weeks in cinemas and everyone's going to be talking about the box office numbers for a long time but at at the center there is this movie that is at the center of all this discussion and for anyone who's a, a film buff or just interested in cinema it's going to be the film to see this holiday season so yes i think it i think it's definitely definitely worth going going to see even if it's just to have an opinion <laughs> indeed okay so that is avatar 2 the way of water and it is out in cinemas in 2d and 3d on friday right so from one starry sequel to another now it's this I've invited you all to my island. Hi. Because tonight, a murder will be committed. My murder. Once you're dead, will we still be able to talk to you? Yeah, I'm not playing dead the whole weekend, dude. This is truly delightful. Across the island, I've hidden clues. You will have to closely observe each other. If anyone can name the killer, that person wins our game. Any questions? (laughs) Alibari. That has a kick. Oh my God, what happened? So this is Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Jack, it's not going on from Knives Out. It's a totally different new story. In a nutshell, in a onion, can you describe what's going on here? Well, it is a brand new story from Ryan Johnson, but he's brought back Daniel Craig's Detective Benoit Blanc. Um, this time, it's an Elon Musk-esque tech bro boss called Miles Brown, who's played by Edward Norton, who's invited all of his close friends to enjoy a murder mystery at his private island, with the end result apparently being Miles's own death and the guests having to work out who killed him. So those friends, they're an assortment of 
A-list actors, essentially. There's Kate Hudson, who's a, a party girl turned sweatpants designer and her assistant played by Jessica Henwick. There's Dave Bautista as an Alex Jones type men's activist, streamer, tech, like bro person. Um, and his girlfriend played by Madeline Klein. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr. is there as a scientist who works directly with Norton's character to create some new clean energy source. There's Catherine Han as a governor running for Senate. And finally, we have Janelle Monet as the woman who helped Miles create his fortune and his company. So Benoit is also invited along to kind of up the ante on this murder mystery game they're all playing because why not invite the world's best detective? And of course there are twists and turns and all that kind of stuff along the way. There's a really huge literal glass onion. We won't go into spoilers here, but there are people who surprising deaths, a surprising, well, arguably surprising murderer and a denouement at the end that I personally didn't feel was anywhere near as satisfying as the one in the first movie though i did enjoy quite a lot of the characters along the way here what do you think uh, jane and there's some very satisfying glass smashing there is a lot of glass smashing which i thought this must have been the most fun day on set for the people involved in this <laughs> i would have loved to have done that much smashing didn't find the film a smasher though did you i i enjoyed a lots of the characters and some of the banter but I did feel that some of the talking points, especially those, you know, as I as I kind of hinted at in talking about the characters, you know, the, the tech bros, the Elon Musk type people, it all feels very on the nose and perhaps at times a bit too smug and self-knowing and distracting in a way that takes away from the actual mystery at hand, especially because the actual mystery isn't perhaps as strong as it could have been. Whereas with most murder mystery movies, I love watching them again and being able to work out all the details and go like, oh, that's what they were doing there. That was what the murderer was doing. But this movie, they they literally go back and they replay half the movie from a different character's perspective. Yeah. So you can go, oh, that's what they were doing there. That's what they were doing there. And that feels like it, it's basically saying the mystery was either you couldn't work it out yourself. Or and it because it was too complicated, or that the mystery's not strong enough. And so we have to go back and really lay it out for you and, and just to build up the runtime. And I would say it was a mixture of those two. And it that that side of it, the moment it got to that point, I kind of just clocked out of it. I was I, I was really enjoying it up to that point. And then I went, Oh, this is actually a really odd decision to to go into this minuscule level especially of replaying like parts from the movie and seeing it again from the same angles basically in many parts it was, it was just odd so i don't know i again i enjoyed some of the characters but you know these types of movies live and die on the mystery don't they yeah and i have to say i guessed who it was quite early on because of a quite ham-fisted pass off of an item that i noticed immediately how that item had been passed to another person and then knew exactly who had done it. So then when it was revealed, it was like, oh. And so that was kind of disappointing for me. But maybe that's just because I was watching that particular moment in a forensic way and maybe caught something I wasn't <laughs> supposed to. I don't know. But that sort of disappointed me. But yeah, the thing I find about this, and I found about Knives Out as well, found it a little bit smug and knowing and a bit, aren't we clever, Aren't we having a good time? And it looks like they had the most amazing time. That cast in Greece during lockdown, having a wonderful time on that beautiful island, 
good for you guys. But the sort of script feels so arch and so knowing that I kind of found it went bordered into just annoying for me. Just things like when Janelle Monet's character starts talking about Harriet Tubman and you're like, well, I know you were in Harriet, so ah ha ha ha. And also just very of a time, the jokes and the sort of mm. the ripping the piss out of influencers or, um, you know, the, the sort of Dave Batista character felt weirdly like they wouldn't age well, that this was of a specific time. And maybe that's what you want from a film, a film that really does say COVID times about it. But I, it didn't sit well with me. I didn't love it. And I went yeah, to the I mean, premiere. Can I just say I went to the premiere and I sat next to Daniel Craig, who laughed like a drain throughout it. So he really enjoys it. But I didn't laugh as much as Daniel. Sorry, Dan. Oh, I mean, I'm glad he had a good time. And and it really does feel like the cast had an amazing time making yeah. this because it, it's on an incredible island. The cinematography is really stunning in this as well. But I do agree about many of the jokes and... I also felt strange seeing people on screen wearing masks still and stuff like that. And there's this really kind of nonchalant way they dismiss how they're all hanging out together without having to continue wearing masks with Ethan Hawke's character involved. Yes. And it just felt really odd. It really struck me as being like, wow, this is kind of contrived. And I don't know if I like that. And talking about the humor, a lot of it's feels like Twitter humor from the time as well. It feels like we've spent a lot of time online and we're going to make a lot of online jokes now because no one's out in the real world. And I guess right now releasing the movie, it therefore it does, it still feels a bit dated. Mm. It feels like if this had come out last Christmas, I could totally see it working and being very, very kind of of the times of the moment. You know, they mentioned like NFTs and things like that in the movie. Yeah. And it's just like, all... just, no one cares about that anymore. That's been and gone. No. Yes. But if you enjoyed Knives Out, it is more of the same. You know, you do get a starry cast. It is like those, you know, sort of Agatha Christie's that they used to do back in the sort of 70s where, you know, there was, here's David Niven, off he, off he goes. And here's Bette Davis. You know, like, it is good. But I, yeah, if you like something a bit more meaty and less arch, then it might just great. Yeah, I know a lot of people who have really enjoyed this movie. Interestingly, it feels like there's a slight American-UK divide in the humour, that maybe the humour is more tailored to Americans and that side. I don't know I don't know what's actually in there. I don't know what that means, but I thought I'd put it out there. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, it was not on... I really enjoyed The First Knives Out, and it was not on level with that movie. And I think... The, the whole mystery in the first one, the characters, everything just felt fuller and more timeless as well. Whereas this felt so of a moment that it needs to be released now. Otherwise, it's just going to date really badly and we're going to watch it in a year's time and be like, oh, God, that was a time, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been at cinemas, um, so it's obviously uh, courting the awards season. And now it's going to Netflix. I think that's a good place for it. Knives Out dropping on Netflix, especially around Christmas time. It's a great movie to throw on the telly when the whole family's there. Maybe had a few drinks. Everyone can have a chat through the movie about who did it, what's going on, that kind of thing. I think it will be that will be a lot of fun. Or which which is kind of mm, strange to say about films. Normally, I'd be don't say a word during a film. 
But at the same time, this is the sort of movie that invites discussion. I mean, my main memories of watching murder mysteries and the Agatha Christie stuff is like reruns on ITV. Yes. But, you know, Midsummer Murders and everyone having a little chat and a cup of tea and watching these. So I think it definitely suits the home environment. Um, so yeah, I think it I think it's gonna do super well for Netflix. Obviously, it's disappointing that it didn't have a longer cinema run initially because it was only out for a week. But I still think this is going to be a great place for it. And one of the rare movies where home viewing really is going to be very helpful for it. And I think people might prefer it watching Mm. at home, being able to have that discussion rather than, you know, because if you're paying super close attention, like you obviously were, Jane, and noticed the the minor detail that you know, you know, the bits that I'm talking about. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you're watching it on Netflix, you can pause it, can't you, after one of the beats has happened and be like, guys, who do we think it is now? Um, and this can be a sort of communal, chatty experience that is probably exactly what you want at Christmas. And whoever gets it wrong can have a drink at the end as a as a forfeit. I don't condone drinking games. That was, we'll, we'll ignore you, that. You can do that with a juice. Or a nice Whatever cup of tea. Lovely cup uh, of tea and a mince pie. There you go. So It's a good if, cup of tea movie. It is a good <laughs> cup of tea movie. Okay, so if you fancy that, Glass Onion hits Netflix on the 23rd of December. Perfect for Christmas. Right, final film now for this week. It's time to get regal. It's this. A lion doesn't lose sleep over the opinion of sheep. I love to look at you looking at me. So this is Corsage. Um, Jack, not about a little flowery thing you put on your wrist when you're going to prom. What is it about? So, yes, Corsage is about Vicky Creeps playing the Empress Elizabeth of Austria. And she's also the Queen of Hungary. Also known to those who watched the recent Netflix series called The Empress uh, as Cece. Yes. Um, but this is a dramatization of her life that that plays more loosely with the, the facts. Uh, so the story is essentially the Empress's breakdown. She's under constant scrutiny for her looks, in particular her weight. And she tries to fit into these tightening corsets to go on royal duties. She has an undiagnosed eating disorder. She has a childlike demeanor uh, that her own children see as kind of not befitting a, a queen or an empress uh, she has these loyal maids around her some some who are friends uh, and she has the empress has this desire to be free and be loved and be queen to the people and but she's selfish and she's a loving mother and a terrible mother and she goes away and leaves hungry and doesn't do her duty and then she comes back and her husband's both doting on her and then despises her and it's all these multitudes of this woman and this this character and it leads to this ending that's historically very inaccurate but sadly somehow feels inevitable for the person presented in this movie um so it's worth noting that that a lot of this is informed by a tragedy in her past which is the the death of her daughter in infancy and interestingly, the movie actually also takes place before the a real tragedy in the death of the daughter was a real tragedy, but another real tragedy in the Empress's life, which was the death of her oldest son at the age of 30. Um, and that was the event in reality that led to her always wearing black. 
mm. the, her entire life. Yes. But this movie takes place just before then and kind of concentrates on this one year in her life. Um, and, you know, she was she's also very sort of historically important because she was assassinated as well. And it's not going into that at all either. This is literally no. a segment of her life, uh, just looking in to her sort of psychological balance that she's trying to keep. And also do not think that there's a massive sort of correlation between this and Princess Diana. We're sort of looking at a woman who's scrutinised by the press and by the people for her fashion, her hair, her weight, uh, her love life, and the pressure that puts on a person and how you navigate that, which I found really interesting. Did you like this? I'm I'm not wholly oh. sure. I, 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 was, I was really, really enjoying it. And then... As it kind of went on and on, I it stopped working for me at a point. I think I didn't actually like the ending particularly. I thought it was it was trying to be clever and play with history, but I, I just didn't like where it was going. And it you know it felt inevitable, but at the same time, I didn't like that feeling of where it was going. So I don't know. I, I feel really mixed on it. I thought it she's great in it. She's uh, great because, in everything, isn't she? Yeah, she, she really is. And the the look of the movie is stunning. You know, there are some really, really beautiful shots in it. But I ended up getting uh, like annoyed with her as a character in places. And I think it, it probably didn't help to return to the beginning of this podcast that I watched it like after I'd watched this episode of, of Harry and Meghan. And my sympathies for royals and royalty really dived. And I, I could totally see, you know, the comparison to Princess Diana. And I could totally see why this is part of the zeitgeist right now. You know, there's a reason that that Netflix show came out exactly the same time as this, basically. Yeah, my sympathies for royals is just completely diminished, especially when, you know, this this woman's kind of turning down all this really nice food. And I maybe I was just hungry and I was like, why aren't you eating that? delicious looking chicken but i get it i get it from you know she can't because she's bullied by you know the press and and everyone like that but i don't know i i feel like get out go do what you need to do she was still riding her horses and living this free life and having affairs and all this kind of stuff it, but well, she's a really complicated I'm, okay i'm gonna take task okay, with you because it's not as simple as that this isn't about being royal this is about being a woman in that particular time and that there are still elements of that today this is about you know a woman who is not allowed to eat everything she wants because her appearance is what people think of her that's how they think of her as a woman you know you say she's having affairs but she she cannot but her husband can she can't just get out and do stuff jack she's a woman in you know in a certain time period that's laced into a corset daily she's got an eating disorder that's why she's not eating a chicken and that's not because she's a royal brat that's because she's psychologically damaged and she has to fit into a 16 inch corset which is insanely small i mean she was famous for her very very long hair she was very famous for her tiny tiny waist and she has to maintain that because that's what recommends her as a woman in the world nothing to do with her intellect she tries to tell her husband you know could i give you some advice about running the country could i give you some advice and he's like no love you're here to be decorous that's it Go off and put your hair on your head, get you your corset strapped in. That's your role. So I think this is much more about feminism than it is about royalty. I so think I'm you glad, might have missed the point. I'm glad you said all that because I, I do agree, obviously, with everything you said. But I also think that therefore my frustrations are more 
with society and the pressures we put on people and all that kind of stuff rather than her because i found her absolutely fascinating as a character but i do find that kind of i guess the, the you know she's a victim of the times right she's yes. a victim of everything that that we've put on her and i i it just gets to a point where i get so frustrated with all that stuff and so annoyed with it and annoyed with the idea that you know people can't just live the lives they want to live and and just go and do it that I don't know I guess I'm more frustrated with that so it's not necessarily that I can totally see that you know the the problems and the, and the hardships that she faces as a as a woman in the time and I think it's extraordinarily well done in this movie but it it's still a hard it's a difficult watch yeah. and you know but there and is therefore... some fun as well let's not just say it's all dragging down like she's quite sort of impish in this as well in her sort of rebellion against the role that she's been forced into you know she she breaks the fourth wall and looks directly at camera coming upstairs quite early on she gives the finger to a dining room full of dignitaries she you know chops off this hair that she is renowned for the very symbol of her femininity and her beauty i feel like if you watch it and sort of embrace those small rebellions that she's doing it feels the ending that you're talking about which we won't spoil feels less like a downer and more like a triumph in a weird way of her taking agency and putting her finger up at everybody so i just really enjoyed the whole process i i still disagree about the ending because i i didn't enjoy that and didn't work for me and i also feel like a lot of those things you're referencing felt i i realized this was the the feeling of the film just slightly out of not out of place but i don't know there was kind of a modern a modernism to yeah. those kind of touches. so though don't you think that was that's the I, point. I agree i i agree because like the soundtrack as well you know we've got this almost poppy singing over the top as well yeah. created for the movie i didn't like it i don't yeah. know it just it really struck wrong with, with me and felt out of place and felt I don't know. It, it, I, I could totally see what it was doing. I can totally see why people would would like that. But I don't know, because it's, it's worked previously with with um, Marie Antoinette is period. what it reminded me of. Did you like yeah. Marie Antoinette, Sophia? Capel well, yeah, Capelis? I was, I was going to say as well, there was like, um, what was that um, Kate Beckinsale movie that was kind of like modern uh, period piece that she was in? I can't remember. It was Love like and Friendship. Love and, Love and Friendship. That's the one. Really enjoyed that. Really you know, it has worked for me in the past, but something about it here, I think because there, so much of it was grounded in what felt like the time and, and like the, the costuming and the way it was filmed. I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't ready for it. Maybe I wasn't ready for this film. I, I think maybe, like maybe I... I think, Jack, maybe you should have had a little roast chicken and checked your male privilege at the door, baby. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you need to have another go at it. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I would say I really enjoyed the first half. And it was the second half where it just started to unravel for me a bit. So mm. I don't know what that says. And also, you know, we're all entitled to our own opinion. And it's great that movies make us think completely different things. So there we go. If you fancy a bit of corsage and see which side of the fence you're going to fall on, it's out in cinemas this Friday. I think it's a great film. So there. You know, like having not been that thrilled with Glass Onion and not been that thrilled with Avatar, I was thrilled to be thrilled by a film. So I love it. Okay, so now it's time to conclude the Star Wars character war for this year. Mm -hmm. 
this has been going on for weeks. Who was the best character in Star Wars? And he took on all comers, but the standout character who appeared in our second week and then reigned until the end was, of course, Darth Vader. No! Surprised by that, Jack? No, because it was my pick. So. Yeah, <laughs> so... it was your pick. You brought him in <laughs> and he just destroyed all competition. No one could stand up, not even Obi-Wan Kenobi. I mean, I was surprised that he initially beat Han Solo in the first place, but he is just such a great villain. He's such an icon, especially of the series. The iconography around him is just, you know, it's it, it will last for years and decades and centuries to come he is just one of those characters who is part of the zeitgeist and part of pop culture and you know the people like luke skywalker i don't know he's he's the nice naive boy but there's something thrilling about a villain that can really just hit different and when done well and done like this you know it's just he is such a special character and creation and yeah i i think he's he's a deserved winner well done darth you've done it why don't you go off and strangle somebody with the force and i don't know take your helmet off have a little rest you've done it well done all too easy that is all we have time for we'll be back next week for our final pod of the year and then we'll be taking a break until we return in january with 2023's movies god so much to look forward to do subscribe to this podcast if you enjoy it. We love having you uh, here every week. It feels nice and cosy, like a little community. We're in a gang. Join our gang. Before we go, though, Jack, we have a listener's question, which is apt for this week. Who's the greatest on-screen detective? Who's your fave? Well, I'm probably going to go with someone uh, <laughs> a bit basic. I really like Sherlock. So I liked Bendit Cumberbatch's Sherlock in particular. I thought he was great in the BBC series. I thought it was really well done i mean we'll ignore the later seasons where it kind of lost its lost its head a bit especially him and martin freeman's watson together i thought they were really great so i'm gonna go shout out also he's probably the most obvious probably the most classic but for a reason he's just a great character there's so many nuances in him there's so much so many complications there whether it's him being a drug addict at times and or yet still having this mind that's crazy intelligent and able to do all these wildly great things and when one of those stories that he's in is done right it can be a thrilling watch uh jane how about you I have to agree with you. I love The Hound of the Baskervilles. That's my favourite one of those. Um, I'm going to go classic too, I think. And I'm going to go with Poirot, Peter Ustinov's Poirot. I watched on repeat Death on the Nile, not the Gal Gadot one, as a kid. And I just love the way he sort of is, you know, befuddled. I love that befuddled. I love this about Columbo as well. You know, um, this sort of, the people think they've got one over and then he goes, uh, just one moment and then unravels their entire great plan. So Benoit, Daniel Craig's Benoit, doesn't even come close to Poirot by Peter Ustinov with his moustache in a net at night and his bumbling demeanour and his snobbism. I love the snobbism of Poirot that um, he sort of, he thinks he's great, and but sometimes he is wrong-footed by people. But ultimately, he always gets his guy. So yeah, it's Poirot for me. Um but there's so many good ones, aren't there? And hopefully with, you know, the the love surrounding The Glass Onion and various other Ryan Johnson mysteries, um, we'll get more 
more different and weird detectives that I'm, I, you know, I love Ace Ventura pet detective, you know, <laughs> he's great. A great shout. Yeah. I completely forgot that counts in this argument. Can I it doesn't have mine? <laughs> yeah. It can be pets. It doesn't have to be real people. <laughs> Very good. So there you go. Those are ours. Um, let us know on Twitter if you have a great on-screen detective. So that's it for now, Jack. We're going to be back in January. It's time to say goodbye. Do you want to do it in your best Benoit voice or Navi voice? Oh, man, the the choice is there. I mean, I'll do it in the Navi voice because because then it will just be a hiss and it'll be... Didn't that's hear, my goodbye in Navi. Didn't, didn't hear that. You didn't hear it? No. <laughs> Did we hear that? Are we not... Oh, man. It's not picking up what? your Navi hiss. I'm going to look up goodbye in Navi. What is it? It is uh, Ewa Nugahu. Nice. Uh, I'm going to say it in the style of Benoit then. Well, goodbye, ladies and gentlemen. Happy holidays. Shut up! <laughs> Shut up with that Kentucky Fried Foghorn Leghorn drawl! Yo, listen up, here's the story about a little guy that lives in a blue world. And all day and all night and everything he sees is just blue, like him inside and outside. Blue his house with a blue little window and a blue Corvette. And everything is blue for him and himself and everybody around, cause he ain't got nobody to listen to. I'm blue, I've been beat, I've been dying.